Okay, uh, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, like Mark said, my name is Matthew Bowerman. Uh, my wife and I, Lauren, uh, we just moved here last week, uh, I think last Wednesday, so we've been here for about 10 days. Um, uh, I'll get the elephant out of the room. Uh, I sound a little different than you, uh, so you might not be able to understand anything that I say, but at least you'll be entertained uh, for a little while. Uh, so I uh, am from Birmingham, Alabama. I grew up there. I spent almost uh, 26 years there. Uh, today's my 26th birthday, actually. Um, so it's a, yeah, it's a, <laughs> a great, great birthday gift to, to be able to be here with you. Um, so uh, grew up in Birmingham, um, went, went to seminary uh, there. Uh, my wife and I, Lauren, we got married just over six months ago. And so as graduation was approaching, started uh, searching for church jobs and uh, pursuing uh, ministry, and so started looking around the Gospel Coalition uh, website and saw a job posting that, that Mark had had for a church planning resident out in Colorado, and so just kind of on a whim, I thought I'd send my resume that way, and he and I talked a few times, and we, we kind of hit it off, and Lauren and I talked with Mark and Jen and uh, loved them, and uh, they shared with us the vision of Redemption Parker to be a gospel-centered church, one that is focused on uh, the preaching of the word, raising up disciples, reaching uh, their community and uh, beyond with the gospel, on being a church that plants churches. And that was just something that Lauren and I really connected with. That, that sounded uh, like something that God was leading us to do. And so we prayed, and we had some uh, hard conversations with some, some family members, uh, but, but it all went really well. Um, and so we've been out here for a few days. Um, and, and speaking of getting here, I did want to take a minute uh, before jumping into our passage for this morning just to say thank you. Um, this has probably been one of the easiest transitions uh, that I've ever had to go through. Um, before we even got here, people were searching for jobs for Lauren. Um, when we had to move, I think half the church showed up with their huge trucks, and we got all our stuff into our new place in under an hour. Um, many of you have already had us over to your homes for a meal. I, I've even had to say no to some people because we were already busy uh, hanging out with other church members. Um, so we have felt nothing but welcomed and encouraged and supported. Um, so I do just want to say thank you for being a church that uh, cares uh, for its members, um, even it's not yet members already. Um, so I'm thankful to the Lord uh, for all of you. Um, so if, if you would, uh, I'll just pray again, um, just as a thankfulness to the Lord for, for the gift that this church is, and we'll begin. Lord, you are a good and holy God, and you give your children good gifts. Um, I'm humbled by the gift that this church is, by their willingness to serve, um, their willingness to uh, embrace new people quickly and to make them feel at home. Um, I praise you for that, uh, for the gospel picture there. I ask that you would keep us, would you sustain us, and by your spirit, would you continue to form us into the image of your son. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So this week, uh, we are going to be doing something a little different. We've been in the church series. Uh, we've been learning about what is the church, church membership, church covenants, elders, members. Uh, we've been uh, you know, studying on, on what the church is, and Mark has been leading us through that. 
And he, he was great to me. He was like, it's your first time. Just do whatever you want. Just kind of threw a, a softball up uh, for me to, to hopefully uh, get a good rep in my first time. Uh, so this is technically a standalone sermon. We'll pick back up with the church series next week. Um, but the passage that we're going to be looking at today uh, is still related to the church. Um, if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me, uh, we're going to be studying Matthew 16, verses 13 to 23. Matthew 16. And so it's technically not a part of the church series, uh, but there is some great teachings on the foundation of the church. Uh, and so hopefully that will, it will be beneficial for us uh, to study. Uh, I'll give you another second or two to find it. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 23. I'll read it for us. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And when they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the word of the Lord. So in the first few verses of our passage this morning, Jesus asks two questions. Now before we go any further, something that we need to know is that God never asks a question that he doesn't already know the answer to. He's like a really good lawyer. God never asks a question he doesn't already know the answer to. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve had sinned and they covered themselves and they hid, God asked Adam, Eve, where are you? Now, God is omnipotent. He is everywhere. And he's omniscient. He knows everything. So when God was asking them, where are you? It's not that he didn't know. Jesus does this in the New Testament as well. Think of Mark 5. He's walking through a giant crowd and there are people pressing in on, on all sides of him. And, and a woman who'd been sick for 12 years, she pushes her way through the crowd and she touches the hem of his robe and Jesus stops. He said, who touched me? Now Jesus made every single person that was pushing on him from every side. He spoke them into existence. He upholds them by the word of his power. Each one of them lives and moves and has their being because of him. So when Jesus asked the question, who touched me? Again, it's not because he doesn't know. 
Whenever God asks us a question, it's not because he doesn't know. It's because he is confronting the person that he is asking the question to. He wants that person to think, to search their own hearts, and to reckon within themselves, to have to give their own answer. And how we answer God's questions determines whether we move away from the kingdom of God or towards the kingdom of God. So be warned that as we work through this passage, that God has some confronting questions for you. We are going to be confronted by God and the gospel. And how we answer these questions uh, will determine if we move away from the kingdom or towards the kingdom. All right, so the first question that Jesus asks, he's walking with his disciples, and he says, who do the people say that I am? Now, now Jesus has been a very busy man. He has preached the most famous sermon of all time, the Sermon on the Mount. He's fed 4,000 people. He's calmed the storm. He's started to have this conflict with the Pharisees, who were the religious elite of the day. He speaks in these weird, vague, mystical parables nobody really seems to understand. He's got these people following him around all day. So he's kind of building this presence in Galilee. And so he kind of seizes the moment, and he asks his disciples, who do the people, the people at large, the population as a whole, who do they think that I am? When they look at all that I'm doing, what, what do they think of me? And the disciples chimed in. They said, some say that you're John the Baptist, or others Elijah. Some think you're Jeremiah, or just one of the prophets. And, and that answer made sense. Prophets were people who were spokespersons for God. They would bring a message from God to the people. Uh, they would correct people or call them out. They were kind of these social reformers of the day. And so when people uh, looked at Jesus and saw him preaching about repentance and the coming kingdom, like it, it, he kind of sounded just like another one of the prophets. But, but that was just it. He was just another one of the prophets, someone who would come, have his day, and eventually he would die and somebody else would come after him. I think if we were to ask this question of our society today, who does our society, who do our people, our population at large, who do they think that Jesus is? I, I don't think the answer has gotten much better. Uh, we, we might not say that he's a prophet. We would just say that, yeah, Jesus, Jesus was a good guy. He, he was nice. He was a caretaker. He was a good moral teacher. Like He's someone who we should emulate when we can, when it's comfortable, when it suits us. But I, I don't think if you went around and asked most people who Jesus is, I don't think they would say that he had much authority in their life. All right. But notice something in this passage. Jesus doesn't care what the people think. He doesn't care what society at large thinks of him. All right, he asks the question, who do the people say that I am? The disciples give, the, give their answer, and Jesus moves right on. Between verse 15 and verse 16, he's never like trying to engage with those answers that you're just one of the prophets. He doesn't try and correct them. He just asks another question. He moves right on. He doesn't care what the people think. He goes from asking a generic question to then asking a specific question. And he says, I don't care what the people think. I care what you think. So who do you say that I am? This isn't a decision that 
everybody as a whole collective unit gets to make. This is a decision that each individual person has to make. Who do you say that Jesus is? Just to let you know a little bit about my testimony and my background, I had to answer this question who I thought Jesus was as a sophomore in college. Uh, again, I'm from Alabama, and in Alabama, everybody says that they're a Christian. And they either are or they think that they are. And so you just have to be very, very discerning uh, and ask some very specific questions and develop some uh, sensitive ears uh, in discerning that. So I had grown up in the church. My uh, parents and my sister, they're both all of them are strong, faithful believers. And so I had grown up in the church around the gospel. I had benefited from the proximity to the gospel. In the South, it actually costs you something to not be a Christian. Uh, society looks at you funny if uh, you don't confess faith in Christ. So it's actually beneficial for you to be a Christian. And so that was kind of the faith culture that I grew up in. So I graduated from high school and I went off to Tuscaloosa, the University of Alabama, which I'm sure, as you know, has a great reputation for godliness and holiness and righteousness. Um, <laughs> uh, we have a, a great sanctuary. It seats 100,000 uh, on Saturdays. Um, <laughs> so, so I get off to Alabama, and the culture is a little different there. Um, it doesn't benefit you to be a Christian in Tuscaloosa. It costs you things. It can cost you your time and your energy and your relationships. It's not cool. And so as soon as kind of those natural support structures that I had my entire life were taken away, I, I was faced with this question. Who do I say that Jesus is? Is he someone that's convenient for me? Does he advance my social status? Does he make me fit in with the culture? Or does he have an authoritative role that causes me to sacrifice something? in my life? Do I have to say that he is the king and the ruler of my life and not me? So I, I was wrestling with these things, and uh, one Christmas, my sophomore year for college, I went home to my parents' house, and I walked into their kitchen, and some of you have, have heard me tell this story in person, um, but my mom, she had this like Christian book ordering magazine, and she just handed it to me and said, hey, if you want anything for Christmas, just let me know and I'll buy it for you. And so I started flipping through it, and uh, at the time, I had no idea what made me do it. Now, hindsight of faith is 2020. I can see why. But at the time, I had no idea, and I saw a 10-volume set of Charles Spurgeon sermons. Amen. Amen. Yes. I like you people. Uh, Y'all are good people. Uh, (laughs) And so Charles Spurgeon, he was a pastor in England uh, during the 1800s. And I got it for Christmas, and I started to read them. And for about a year, I read at least one sermon of his a day, usually two or three. And when I say that I was a man possessed, it was like this was my food. There was something different when I read Spurgeon. It was actually kind of like I was hearing him. And, And I think that the difference was he preached like the Bible that he was reading from was authoritative. He preached like he believed the words that he read. He preached with a beauty and a clarity and authority that captivated me. And so reading Spurgeon forced me to read my Bible. I wanted what he had, so he sent me to this book. And so I was reading it for myself, and I was being confronted 
by the claims of Jesus. That he is the king, that he is the Lord, that he is Christ, and that if he is those things, then I have to submit myself to him. And so I was wrestling with all of these things with faith and doubt and him versus me. And so I I call this my purple couch moment. One night I was sitting in my college dorm room on a truly sinfully ugly purple couch. It it was hideous. Uh, And and I was reading a Spurgeon sermon on Ephesians 2, and I was reading through Ephesians 2 myself, and I read that I was dead in my sins and trespasses, that I was following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. And those, those two beautiful words that start verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the grace that he has shown us in Christ Jesus, has made us alive in Christ Jesus. And it is by grace, not by proximity to the gospel, not by my parents' faith, not by my own works, but by grace that I am saved through faith. And I remember reading that and just the Holy Spirit opening uh, the eyes of my mind and my heart and the gospel and the Bible and God's plan for his kingdom just burst forth in my mind. And so I got off that ugly purple couch, I got on my knees, and I confessed faith. I said, Christ, you are who you say you are. Your word is true, and I believe it. You are Lord. It's a question that every single one of us will be faced with at some point. Jesus doesn't care who the world says that he is. He cares who you say that he is. And all of us are going to be confronted with that question. Who do you say that I am? And remember, how you answer God's questions determines whether you move away from the kingdom or towards the kingdom. Peter, I feel like he and I kind of have similar moments here. Uh, Peter, to say that he had an up and down career would be uh, an overstatement. That'd be a little generous. He mostly had a really down career. Uh, he he kind of sucked as a disciple. He failed a lot. Uh, but, but here in this passage is one of the very rare moments that Peter gets it right. Jesus asked this question. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus rejoices. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for uh, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And he goes on to say, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Verse 18 is a very hotly contested passage, very hotly contested verse, and especially regarding ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is just a big $5 word for the study of the church, so these last few weeks, of we've, as we've been studying church membership and covenant and mission, we've been doing ecclesiology. That's all that means. And this verse is one of the, the hot topics in ecclesiology. And the question that comes up is, what is this rock that Jesus is talking about? He says, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, Roman Catholics claim that uh, this rock that Christ is referring to was Peter himself, Peter the person as the rock. And their argument is linguistic. It's based on uh, the the wording of the passage. In Greek, uh, Peter's name is P. 
petros, or stone. It's very similar, but, but not identical to the Greek word petra for rock. And so they think that when Christ says, I will build uh, my church on this rock, he's kind of like just building a lot on that pun of saying that on this person, on Peter, I will build my church. So from there, they get the doctrine of the Pope, that one Pope represents Christ and builds the church, and then another Pope comes along. And they add to that that the Pope uh, is also infallible, that the Pope is authoritative. So uh, they kind of have in Roman Catholic belief that the Bible and the Pope have equal authority. Uh, Now, as a Protestant, I don't believe that Peter is the foundation of the church. And it's not because I'm a Protestant and I adhere to that theological category that I don't agree with that. The reason I don't believe that Peter is the foundation of the church is because I don't see it supported by the scriptures. Uh, I didn't plan this. It just... uh, happily providential worked out that our scripture for the New City Catechism was 2 Timothy 3.16. It says that all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Psalm 19 says that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are are right, and they are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. The Lord's word is what is authoritative and infallible, and it is our authority. And so when I hear these two claims that uh, Peter is the foundation of the church, and when I search the scriptures, I, I don't see those two things agreeing. Because if you read the Bible, Peter clearly is not an infallible person. He messes up a lot. All right. In Galatians 2, uh, there are some Jews and Gentiles. Some Gentiles had recently been brought into the faith, and they were having a meal together. And Peter, he was offended that the Gentiles thought they could eat with the Jews. He, he thought that you don't look like me, you don't talk like me, you don't have the same background as me, you shouldn't deserve to eat with the real people of God. He was a spiritual elitist, kind of how we would understand racism today. And Paul has to go to Peter and confront him and say, you are walking out of step with the gospel. We know that on the night that Jesus uh, was betrayed, uh, Peter denied him three times. Just later in our passage for this morning, we are going to see Jesus call Peter Satan himself. So so clearly, Peter is a messed up, infallible guy, and I, I don't see that he is the rock that Christ will build his church upon. Okay, so, so if it's not Peter, well, Matthew, what, what is the rock? What is the foundation of the church? Redemption Parker, we're a young church. We just celebrated our one-year anniversary, and you know, we, we want to be active in doing ministry. We want to make disciples, and we want to plant other churches, and we want to take the gospel to the community. If we're going to build our church, we need to get the foundation right. The foundation is the most important part of a structure, so so we can't miss this. So what is the rock? In the book of Matthew, the word rock is used four times. It's used once here in this passage, once at the tomb where Jesus was laid in a rock, 
and twice in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. If you kind of widen your scope beyond Matthew, and if you look at the New Testament, the word rock is used 12 times. And here's the key. Here is what will show us what this rock is. What is the foundation of the church? In all of the New Testament, the word rock is never used of anything or anyone other than Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, Paul writes about the water that flowed from the rock in the wilderness in the Old Testament, and he says that that rock was Christ. Romans 9, Paul quotes from the prophet Isaiah, and he says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him, whoever believes in Christ, whoever believes on that rock will not be put to shame. In Acts 4, after Pentecost, Peter, the very one who Jesus is having this confronting conversation with, Peter gets up and he preaches, and he says that Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this Jesus, this rock, not me, this rock is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. And he has now become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. So what is the rock? What is the foundation of the church? What is the hope of redemption? Parker, the rock is Jesus. Jesus is the only sure and steady foundation that we have. He does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no shadow of change due to him before the mountains were brought forth or ever the Lord had created the heavens and the earth. From everlasting to everlasting, God is God. Peter failed and he failed often. You and I fail and we fail often. The only foundation that we can trust and have any confidence in is Jesus Christ himself. As the old hymn goes, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So Christ is the foundation of the church. And on that strong, sure, and steady foundation, we then hear Christ say, I will build my church. It's a small letter, but it changes everything. I will build my church. I think there is some helpfully and humbling application for us here. Congregationally, this is humbling. As a young church who wants to raise disciples, we uh, want to plant churches, we want to reach our community and the world with the gospel. I think all of us in this room are eager to be about the work of the ministry. We are ready to do things. Personally, uh, as someone who's fresh out of seminary, who for several years has been reading way too much and studying and preparing uh, to go and do the work of the ministry. Like, I, I feel like I've been a caged dog and I'm just chomping at the bit to write sermons and to uh, be with the people to rejoice and celebrate in the good times and to weep and lament in the bad times and to do church logistics and administrative. Like, I'm just ready to be in the thick of pastoral work. I, I hope it's a holy ambition. All right. 
All of us, I hope, as disciples, as faithful followers of Christ, have some desire uh, to do this work, and we should. All right, but, but we have to catch something here. Jesus says that he will build his church. It is so easy for pride to sneak into our lives, even into the good things that you and I do in service of the Lord. And it would be very easy for Mark or for Brad or for myself or for anyone who preaches to think that Redemption Parker will be built based on the quality of our sermons. Or for Aaron or Mary or anyone who leads us in worship faithfully and very skillfully each week, it would be easy for them to think that Redemption Parker will be built based on the quality of my musicianship. Or if you serve in the children's ministry, or if you are a gospel community leader, or if you are in a discipleship relationship with someone in the church, it would be very easy to think that without me building the church, then Redemption Parker will fall. We have to remember what Scripture says. Jesus says that He will build His church. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1. He said, Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. A.K.A. We're not that impressive. We don't have that much to offer. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. I think if I could put this another way, I would say that Jesus is the head pastor of Redemption Parker. It is based upon his word that we are led. We worship him. He disciples us. He pastors us. He cares for us. He does institute human leaders to lead in that, but, but First Peter only calls our church leaders under shepherds. And it is their job to point to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Mark and I had a sermon writing meeting earlier this week, and he really encouraged me to be clear here uh, that the way that Jesus is the senior pastor of our church practically is when he ascended to heaven, he then sent his Holy Spirit to us to guide us and to teach us and to lead us into all truth. And so by the Holy Spirit, when we read the word, we are pointed to Jesus. By the Spirit, when we sing these gospel-centered songs, we are pointed to Jesus. In our gospel communities, where we, uh, was it gospeling one another? When we gospel one another, we point each other to Jesus. Not to ourselves, but to the chief shepherd. Now, just, just a catch, a pastoral theological catch, just because Jesus is the pastor of this church, just because he builds this church, that doesn't mean that we don't work hard. All right? Sermons are hard work. Worship leading is hard work. Children's ministry is the hardest work of anything. <laughs> you have my admiration and my prayers. Just because God does the, he builds church, that doesn't mean that we don't work hard. It just means that we do it humbly uh, under the power of his Holy Spirit, under his lordship. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor build in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And when Christ is the foundation of the church, and when Christ is the builder of the church, 
And when you and I join his work humbly, pointing to him, that is a church that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. Okay, so, so in this first section, this was one of the rare times that Peter got it right. He rightly confessed that Christ is the Lord, that he is the foundation of the church. But here in the second half, Peter's back to normal. He's back to his failing, stumbling, fumbling self. And after their conversation, Jesus, he, he starts to say some strange things. He says, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised again. Now, 2,000 years later, if you've been around the church for any amount of time, hopefully this isn't new to you. Like we, we've maybe read this story before. Like We know that Jesus is going to die on a cross and resurrect again. But the disciples at that time, they, they didn't know that. They knew that a Messiah was coming, but, but they had different expectations for what he would be. They thought he would be a political leader who would overthrow the Roman government and establish God's kingdom right now, and they could follow uh, Jesus up to a position of power. And so that, that, that was kind of what was going on in Peter's head when he pulled Jesus aside and said, far be it from you, Lord, this should never happen to you. Okay, you're the Messiah, you're the anointed one, you are, you're God, you're Christ. Like, you have honor, power, prestige, and authority. Why are you talking about suffering and dying? That, that, that's beneath you. And what does Jesus say in response to that kind of logic? Get behind me, Satan. How about that? In six verses, Peter goes from being said, blessed are you to get behind me, Satan. I think this might be the angriest language that Jesus ever uses in the Bible. And Jesus got angry a lot. All right, uh, When he went to the temple and he saw that the money peddlers were praying on the poor and using their religious status to line their own pockets. He formed a whip, started beating the peddlers and flipping the tables and drove them out of the temple. He walked up to a group of Pharisees, of people who drew an extra uh, layer of laws that you have to do in order to be saved. He went up to them and he called them, you brood of vipers. You people are snakes because you are making it harder to get into the kingdom than what I've already established. You are adding works to my grace. Jesus even one time said that if you cause a child who believes in him to stumble, that you deserve to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the depth of the sea. So if your idea of Jesus is someone who's always mild-mannered and never got angry about anything, I, I don't think you've read the New Testament very closely. But, but of all those things, I still think that is a far cry from looking someone in the face and calling them the epitome and the origin of evil itself, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Now, now what would cause such a visceral and a vicious response out of Jesus? We know that Peter got Jesus' title right. He confessed 
that you are the Christ. That's right. But he was using the right word, but the wrong dictionary. He had the the wrong concept of what a Messiah was, of what a Christ was. He was not setting his mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He was using the logic that says, if you are the Christ, if you are the Messiah, if you are God and have power and authority, don't bother suffering. Don't bother going to the cross. The, the, the problem with that is that God and the gospel doesn't work according to worldly logic. All right? So God, when Jesus came, he came to turn everything upside down. He actually came to set everything right. And the way that he did that was by the cross. When Jesus came to this earth, he was born so that he could die at the cross. At the cross, the foolish outwit the wise. At the cross, the weak are mightier than the strong. At the cross, right, or sinful people become righteous. The cross was always Jesus' goal when he came. And so when Peter tried to talk him out of going to the cross, that could only be attributed to Satan himself. And that is why Jesus reacted so strongly. Get behind me, Satan. I came to go to the cross. I have a people. I have a a mission from God. I have a people to redeem. And nothing will stop me from accomplishing my mission. So get behind me, Satan. Peter was trying to talk Jesus out of going to the cross. He was trying to separate Christ from what he came to do. So just to wrap up and to close this passage and to give us a a take-home application. Let's not make the same mistake that Peter did. Let's not get the words and the title right, but misunderstand who Jesus actually is and what he came to do. And so we can say that we are a Christ-centered church, that we are founded on Christ and that we are built by Christ. But let's make sure that our understanding of that Christ is correct. Again, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul said that we must preach Christ and Him crucified. To, to separate Christ from His cross is to neuter the power of the gospel. And it is only a crucified Christ that can save us. It is only a crucified Christ that can unify us. It is only a crucified Christ who can give us hope as a church. So as we go out into this week and go out to our jobs and in our families and into the community, when we preach Christ, preach Him crucified. Let me pray for us that the Lord would give us grace to do these things. Lord, You came to die. You came to save Your people. You came with a mission and nothing could talk You out of it. We praise you for who you are, for the work that you did on the cross. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for sending us your spirit to guide us. We ask that by your spirit, by your grace, that you would build your church, that you would hold us fast, that you would keep us, that we would always be centered on you. Praise things in your name. Amen.